0: If you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 38, we're going to end there, but most of your scriptures are going to be on your outline, so I want you to turn to Jeremiah 38 so that you can be ready for it when we end there. And if you have a pew Bible, it's going to be on page uh, 419, uh, I think 420 actually, page 420. The title of this message is Responding to Suffering Strangers. Responding to Suffering Strangers. It's kind of a strange title. But I want to ask you a question for you to grapple with internally, and that is this. How did you respond to the testimony that you just heard this morning? How did you respond to hearing Fred's testimony? Some of you here know Fred and Linda personally, and so your response might be different than someone who does not know them. Of course, they've been gone over a decade now so many people in this audience do not know uh, Fred he's a stranger to you how did you respond how did you feel when you heard this testimony of going through deep suffering and pain through uh, the cancer of the bladder to the experience of receiving the prayers of the saints and the grace of God and in bringing healing to his body. Did you respond with joy? Joy. Because you maybe you know Fred and you know Linda and you know what they went through and, and you're so happy for their healing. Maybe you prayed for them and you committed them to, to your, your prayers and you had them on your mind throughout a number of the, the, the last number of months and you had been focused on praying for them, and you here today are experiencing joy hearing the news that Fred has come through such a difficult ordeal? Or do you react to the testimony a little bit differently? Do you react with a, t- a tinge of guilt, seeing him up here and realizing, oh my goodness, I didn't pray as much as I ought to have? Uh, I'm so glad that he's healed, but oh, I, I remember them going through this, and yet, and I and I, I had in mind to pray for them, but you know, life gets in the way, and there's so many needs out there, and and I just I see them today, and I'm happy for them, but I feel a little guilty because I wasn't very participatory in this process through prayer. Or for some of you, and, and this is hard to admit, but I think it's true of some of us particularly when we have no relationship with the person who speaks in front of us, do you feel a bit indifferent when you hear a testimony from a stranger? I don't know you. Um, I have neither joy nor guilt. You're a stranger to me. Uh, I just don't know you. So I'm glad you're here, but we don't have any connection. Those who react with indifference often don't want to admit it publicly. That would be rude. Nevertheless, an apathetic sentiment within us can often be very real. And that same feeling of indifference can wash over us each and every time someone we do not know comes before us in the church, usually a missionary or, a, or an old friend of the church, and bears testimony of what God has done. Many times we just kind of, okay, you know, let's, is there something else going on? Let's get to the message maybe, or let's get back to the singing. Some of us might have a feeling of indifference or just kind of distance, like I, I, don't, know, I don't know you. But the internal rationale in our minds, the internal rationale that says, I don't know you, therefore this doesn't interest me very much, That rationale is an excuse found nowhere in the Word of God. In fact, our response to the plight of strangers who suffer is something that we are very much held accountable for according to the Word of God. We needn't turn much further than a place like Matthew 25. Matthew 25, in verse uh, 32 and following, Jesus speaks directly to the issue of responding to a stranger who's gone through suffering. And he speaks of the sheep on one hand and the goats on the other. And then the king comes to the right hand, to the sheep, and he says, Come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger stranger and you took me in i was naked and you clothed me i was sick and you visited me i was in prison and you came to me then the righteous will answer him saying lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink when did we verse 38 when did we see you a stranger and take you in Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? then the king will answer and say, say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Even a stranger, Jesus says. Mindful and aware of a stranger's suffering, Jesus says you're responsible for it. You're responsible for it. You have a part to play. Once you've been made aware of it, once, it's, once the, the knowledge of it is before your face, you have a responsibility as a Christian to, in one way or another, engage that suffering and engage that person in his or her suffering and bless them and encourage them and help them and pick them up. Also on your outline, Hebrews thirteen one through 3. It's interesting how the author uh, uh, begins to word this. He first of all speaks of brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, don't forget to entertain strangers for by so doing some of unwittingly entertained angels. And then he gets to verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated. Since you yourselves are in the body also. There's a progression. There's a, there's a brotherly love. People that you, that you know, that you're in, in, in relationship with. Brothers and sisters. And then there's a stranger kind of relationship. Even when you don't know them, you have a responsibility to them. To, to, in there, in that case of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2, to entertain them. But also to bless them because he goes on to verse 3 and says, And those who are chained, those who are imprisoned, those who are persecuted, Those who are suffering, you're in the body with them, the author of Hebrews says. You're in the body of Christ, and so are they. And as such, you have a responsibility to them. I I came back from vacation this last uh, week. Uh, not knowing what I wanted to preach on I, I knew that we were eventually going to get back into Luke and we will we're going to go back to the Gospel of Luke now that we finished our previous series on um, the rest of life resurrected uh, and now we're about to enter back into the Gospel of Luke but before we did I knew I wanted to kind of have some intermediary uh, messages one of which um, this one just came to mind uh, because I woke up with it on, on um, not even two days ago Friday morning I woke up Thinking about uh, the Christians who um, are suffering around the world. And I'll, I'll get to it in a story in just a minute. But I woke up with the knowledge, with the, God just implanted it in my mind. I woke up Friday morning thinking about Christians who are suffering around the world. And no no joke, I get in my car, I'm driving to church, to the office in the morning on Friday, and as I'm driving, I get a, a ding on my phone. I, I have certain notifications from certain periodicals that I, that I read and trust, and, and every once in a while it'll, it'll send me a, a peri- a, 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 an article to read. And the first article of the, the day that pinged my phone, I look at it and it says, how can American pastors make their churches aware of suffering Christians around the world. That was the title of the article. So I thought, okay, Lord, (laughs) I think I know what I'm preaching on now. I want to share with you three, three stories of current suffering around the world. Strangers to you. You don't know them. Well, you might know them in a cursory way. You don't know these people. I want to share these stories and I want to ask the question, okay, what do we do about this? The first story is, is uh, the story of Pastor Syed Abedini. We've listed him on our bulletin now in our prayers, at the bottom of our prayers for the last at least a year. Here's an update by David Roach of the Baptist Press. Pastor Sayed Abedini, a U.S. citizen, of Iranian descent, was sentenced in early 2013 to eight years in prison for his involvement in Iran's house church movement. Abedini used to live in Iran and was a leader of house churches before moving to America in 2005. He was arrested almost two years ago while on a trip to Iran to build an orphanage. Nagma Abedini, his wife, and the couple's two young children live in Idaho They have not been allowed to speak to Saeed since he was arrested. They have communicated only through family who live in Iran who are permitted to visit Saeed in prison for 20 minutes each week. One organization reports on May 20th that Saeed had been returned to prison after spending two months in a hospital to receive treatment for injuries inflicted by prison officials. He was severely beaten at the hospital as well before returning to prison. Prison guards have told Abedini that they can and will increase his jail sentence unless he stops telling fellow prisoners about Jesus. His wife... Uh, his wife reports, Some said that former Muslim prisoners who placed their faith in Jesus Christ through Saeed's witness have already received extended sentences. Saeed has been witnessing in the jail and those who have converted have had their sentences increased. Still, Saeed feels compelled to keep sharing the gospel. He writes... This is via family and then back to the States. Because I want to serve God, I see all these difficulties as golden opportunities and great doors to serve. There, the, there are empty containers who are thirsty for a taste of the living water and we can quench their thirst by giving them Jesus Christ. That was what he wrote in the letter from prison late last year. Shortly after Abedini was sentenced, his wife began receiving phone calls from women in Iran who said their husbands shared a jail cell with Saeed and had become strangely calm, happy, and joyful. Their husbands told their wives that it wasn't safe to explain the reason for their transformation during family visits at the prison, but they recommended that their wives call Nagma, Saeed's wife. They they couldn't speak it for fear of reprisal in the jail, but all they said to them was, call Saeed's wife. Early on in his imprisonment, this this, this is from Saeed's wife, early on in his imprisonment, I got to talk to some of these wives and lead them to Christ because of the change they'd seen in their husbands. And I told them, I think Saeed has given your husband all he, he has and all he has is the hope he's found in Jesus Christ. One prisoner who began following Jesus told his wife, I don't feel like I'm in prison anymore, I've been set free. That's the story, current story, ongoing story of Saeed Abedini in Iran. Thankful today for uh, the efforts of our government, which is working for his release. Uh, I wish they would do more, but he has been mentioned by name, not only by the Secretary of State, but also by our President. And there have been many, many, many calls for his release. We need to pray for that end. Another story. This is the story that I woke up thinking about. These, these are the people that I woke up thinking about. These are the Christians that are in the town of Mosul, Iraq. This is from Todd Nettleton of Voice of the Martyrs. He writes this. The eyes of the world's media turned last month to the northern plains of Iraq and to the city where Jonah first delivered God's message thousands of years ago. Today, the story isn't of the messenger of of God going into Nineveh, which is now called Mosul, but of thousands of Jehovah's followers being forced out of the city. The alternatives given to the Christians by the Islamic State, ISIS, if they don't leave Mosul, are subjugation to Islam, uh, or being forced to follow a different God, Allah, or they will be killed. Those Christians that fled the city, it is reported that the last 200 Christian families left prior to the IS imposed deadline on July 19th. This was just two weeks ago, friends. They left behind all of their possessions as demanded by ISIS. Many of those that tried to carry more than the clothes on their backs were robbed at IS checkpoints on their way out of the city. There has been an an exodus of thousands of Christians from the former biblical town of Nineveh, now Mosul in Iraq. And they've been pushed out by this radical extremist Islamic group, ISIS. And on their way out, by the way, not only are they not allowed to carry anything, just the clothes on their back, but if they come forward with any jewelry on them, the jewelry is confiscated. And if they can't take the jewelry off their fingers, they're cutting their ring fingers off. The cross of the Cathedral of uh, the cross of the cathedral in Mosul was pulled down and replaced by loudspeakers to broadcast the Islamic call to prayer. Voice of the Martyrs reports, quote, "...a few Christians remain in Mosul, including some elderly and infirmed who were not able to leave. In many cases, Christians are being shielded by other Muslim neighbors. There are credible, credible reports that some have been compelled by ISIS to convert to Islam." by reciting the Islamic Declaration of Faith before a Sharia court, they were, they were given a bunch of options, the Christians in Mosul. They were given the option to convert, to pay a tax, to leave, or to face death. But not all Christians were given all these options. In fact, some Christians only had two options. Voice of the Martyr says there's another group of Christians that were born into Muslim families but have consciously made the choice to reject Islam and follow Jesus. It is important, they write, for American Christians to understand that these Christians do not have a choice to pay a tax or flee. These converts, in the eyes of ISIS, are apostates, and ISIS fighters would give these believers only two choices, return to Islam or be killed. Voice of the Martyrs is ministering to all Christians in the area. Already we are caring caring for 2,000 displaced Christians who have fled Mosul. It is likely that number will increase in the days to come. We are working with Christian converts in the region who risk their very lives to witness to the love of Jesus to Muslims, even radical and violent ones. That's story number two. And for a final story, story number three. This one in northern Nigeria. All of these stories happening right now as we speak northern nigeria dozens of christians in the village of adagara nigeria were killed in two separate attacks carried out by boko haram you may know that name boko haram the news reports have been uh, have featured them a number of months ago a couple months ago now they've kind of dwindled out of the news because it's no longer the hot story but a number of months ago they stole they they kidnapped hundreds of Nigerian schoolgirls, Christian schoolgirls, and have held them captive for a number of months now. A few of them escaped, a handful of them, a few dozen, but there are still hundreds still in captivity with this radical um, group in northern Nigeria. I'll start over. Dozens of Christians in the village of Adagara, Nigeria, were killed in two separate attacks carried out by Boko Haram militants. Militants dressed... In army clothing, shot and slashed people while bombing and burning homes. One of the assaults lasted for more than five hours. One Sunday morning, the church in Adagara, located in the uh, Gwanza local government area, had already begun its regular worship service, just like we meet now. When more than a hundred Islamic militants, some dressed in combat fatigues worn by the Nigerian army, stormed the church building, chanted Allahu Akbar, God is great. The Boko Haram militants shot over 50 people, killing 27. Those who tried to escape were chased down by the fighters. Several Christians ran from the scene to a military checkpoint two miles down the road to ask for help, but the Nigerian army were unable to respond. Meanwhile, the Boko Haram rebels are moving from home to home in Atagara, burning down houses and killing anyone in their way, including small children. Voice of the Martyrs describes Adagara, the town, as a unique Christian community with over 7,000 Christians and a small percentage of of non-Christians and Muslims. Another 3,500 Christians live nearby in other local villages. The Christians in the area are known to be so faithful that the area Muslims call them radicals for Christ. Just last month, Two days after the first attack, Boko Haram drove through the village at 7.30 in the morning, disguised as members of the army, and called people called people to the church for a security briefing, thinking the, the people thinking them to be the Nigerian army. Instead, the 45 people who gathered in the church were gunned down. None survived. Immediately afterward, hundreds of insurgents came over the hills to raid the village. They killed anyone they saw, including pregnant women and small children. One witness saw a group of about 30 women and children being rounded up. As the women tried to shelter the children, the insurgents demanded the children come forward, and 17 boys were slaughtered. The insurgents raided local villages, reducing them to ashes. Churches were bombed. Explosive devices were set to Christian homes and public buildings. Dozens of Christians were killed as they tried to escape. The attacks have lasted up to five hours. Afterwards, it's uncertain how many people have been killed and how many have been kidnapped. Voice of the Martyrs medical coordinator in Nigeria broke down in tears as he described the attacks. He and the team are working to provide medical attention to those who are injured. Another story on uh, Boko Haram indicates that they're now just this week using some of the girls from the school and from other kidnappings. And they're wrapping their their bodies in explosive devices and sending them into the the towns in in, uh, northern Nigeria as suicide bombers and they're blowing up in the middle of these towns. And these these stories are just a small selection of what I could speak of. I could speak of Kenneth Bay and Matthew Todd Miller, American Christians who are imprisoned in North Korea for evangelism. I could speak of Asia Bibi, also in our bulletin, still imprisoned in Pakistan. Her crime drinking from the w- wrong water fountain because she was a Christian and the villagers the Muslim villagers in, the, in that town considered that to be the Muslim drinking fountain so they dragged her behind a mule for miles and stoned her and she barely survived and has been in prison ever since or I could speak of the Ugandan pastor Umar Mulinde who was recently, too, recently reunited with his church in Uganda after two years of recovery and seven surgeries, reconstructive surgeries and surgeries for pain because of an attack in which uh, militants in, in the town were angry with him and threw acid upon his face and back. Or I could speak of the thousands of women and children who are pouring over our borders right now, some of whom are leaving because of the persecution and the great trials that they're facing in Central America. And our country right now is trying to figure out what to do with these many, many people who are being abused and exploited and are pouring over our borders through the the work of nefarious men and are coming with arms wide open asking for help. I took some time to speak of these stories. You may wonder why we would go to such length to, to speak of them, but uh, this last week, um, one of my mother-in-law's friends uh, was asking her, how come, how come Christian churches aren't speaking of what's happening to the Christians in Iraq? And I didn't have an answer when we, when we discussed that as a family. We haven't been. There, there are times in which, uh, there are big gaps in which we forget what's happening around the world. And we've had such a gap recently. And that gap needs to be closed now. There are things happening in our world right now that, friends, you need to be aware of. Not just on your favorite news website. Not just so that you can look at the story and think, oh, well, here's the political solution. No, you need to be aware of some of these stories because Jesus has said that you have a responsibility to strangers who suffer. You have a responsibility. It's laid out in the, in the Word of God. We have a responsibility to those who suffer around the world, particularly to those who suffer as Christians for the name of Christ. Christ. And of course, none of this is, is surprising. We know it's coming. First Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening. No way. We know it's coming, friends. Persecution and suffering are, are coming. Hebrews 11 speaks of the various things that in the past Christians dealt with in suffering. And it will go on into the future torture, verse 35, at the bottom of your outline. Still others had trial of mocking, scourgings, chains, imprisonment, stones, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves. Caves. I I read uh, stories of the Boko Haram uh, militants who chase the Christians into the caves in which they're hiding. This is happening now, not just 2,000 years ago. What is our response? With awareness comes responsibility. We know that from, from Jesus' words. Okay, you're thinking. Okay, this touches my heart. The Spirit is convicting me that I can't remain indifferent. I can't remain indifferent when I hear the plight of Christians who suffer. Nor can I just wallow in guilt. Oh, I I should have, I should have, but I didn't. No, there needs to be a response of the community of Christians around the world, particularly in places where the suffering is not happening. At least not to this degree. What can we do? The Word of God gives us some advice on that. I want to go through it quickly. What can I do for Christian strangers who suffer the first, pray for them. Write that down in the back of your island. Pray for them with weeping and with suffering. Romans twelve fifteen says, Weep with those who weep. First Corinthians 12, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. James says, The prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. It's successful, James says. It's efficacious. Don't assume that prayer doesn't matter. Praying with weeping and suffering, co-suffering... With tears as you pray. Sensing the suffering of other Christians around the world. Having an attitude of, of of sorrow. Of a desire to help, but not knowing what to do. And so all I can do is go down to my knees in prayer. That is efficacious, the scriptures say. So pray for those... Who suffer. Pray with weeping and suffering. Number two, find ways to show companionship toward them. Find ways to show companionship toward them. I direct your attention particularly to verse 33 of Hebrews 10 on your outline, in which it says, Partly you were made a spectacle both of reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. The author of Hebrews is saying, You're going to be blessed insofar as you. Come alongside and show companionship to those who are suffering. You endured a great struggle with suffering. He goes on to talk about a reward that will come as a result of your companionship that you show them. You might be asking, how can I show companionship to Saeed Abedini in Iran? He's in an Iranian prison. How do I be a companion to him? Neil, how how am I a companion to Christians exiting former Nineveh, Mosul, Iraq, By the thousands, how can I be a companion to them? I'm not there. There are ways, actually, to be a companion to them. The first is you can write them a letter. You absolutely can. In fact, Voice of the Martyrs, if you go to um, persecution.com, many other organizations as well, but they actually have avenues through which you can do it online, and they will deliver the message themselves to the prison and do their best efforts to ensure that it gets to Pastor Saeed. You can write letters. You can do it through email, for that matter. You can even visit them, if possible. Particularly those who are more local to your uh, area and region. You know, we think locally here. Uh, I, I, we saw the story in uh, nearby Marietta, uh, where the uh, the illegals who had come over the border, most of whom were women and children, and who were flown from Texas into California. They got on a bus. They drove into Murrieta. And they drove into signs of people who were chanting for them to go home. Signs up saying, Leave. And the vast majority were women and children on the bus. There weren't really any men. Um, and the signs that were held up in that town was, was, Leave. Go home. We don't want you. These are people who are persecuted, who are suffering. If they weren't suffering in Guatemala or Honduras or Nicaragua from which they fled, now they're suffering by the people hurling insults at them in our own country. And yet there were also, thankfully, stories of Christian churches in Marietta that came that same day to hold up signs of love and grace. Maybe they didn't agree with them coming in politically. Maybe they thought that politically speaking, we should toughen up our laws but nevertheless they saw a a higher a higher view of things and they realized that wait a minute these are women and children who have been exploited and who have suffered so we're going to at least show them some love and grace. You can visit them. It's interesting how Paul speaks of the household of Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1 read this with me the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. When he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and he found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Here Paul is is extolling the virtue of a household of people, Onesiphorus and his house, that sought Paul out and said, we're here to help you. We're going to find you, and we're going to bless you. Find ways to show companionship. Number three, give, give to organizations that are able to give them direct aid. To those who suffer, to those who are hurting, to those facing persecution, find the organizations that are working on their behalf and give to them. That's a way you can help. In Mosul, Iraq, there are thousands exiting. And there is at least one organization that is waiting with open arms for them in in the middle part and in the southern part of the country and it is the Voice of the Martyrs. They said on their website that they are currently ministering to 2,000 Iraqi Christians who are coming down with nothing in their hands. Nothing. Just the clothes on their back, maybe even the loss of a finger. They have nothing. And the Voice of the Martyrs is ministering to them in the name of Christ. Share. Share with the distress of others as it's indicated there in Philippians 4. And finally, and I want to leave you with this, number four, plead. Plead their case to officials in high places. Plead their case to officials in high places. I doubt you remember this story. It's a rare one. Some of you might. The story of Ebed-Melech. Raise your hand if you know Ebed-Melech. Ebed-Melech, servant of the king. Probably wasn't his name. It was probably just an official title. He was really very much a servant. Uh, Not so much an an honored or distinguished position, but rather a very lowly, like, service-oriented position. Ebed-Melech was an Ethiopian who served under King Zedekiah of Israel. He served around the time of 586 B.C., During a time in which from the north, (laughs) interestingly enough, Assyria, excuse me, Babylon was coming down from the north and entering into Jerusalem, about to ransack the city, burn down the temple, and take all the Jews away to Babylon. And Ebed-Melech was the servant of King Zedekiah, who was not the wisest of kings. Zedekiah also was in correspondence with a a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah and Zedekiah had a tenuous relationship. Zedekiah would often send Jeremiah to, to, to jail, to prison, because he didn't like what Jeremiah had to say. You see, Jeremiah was one of the only prophets who was speaking the word of God to the king. Jeremiah was speaking the truth. And Zedekiah, the king of Israel, did not want to hear that his kingdom was about to be ransacked by Babylon. And so Zedekiah and Jeremiah were were at odds with one another and Zedekiah would often throw him in prison. And there was one such instance in which Zedekiah threw him in prison and, and the people who were organizing the prison had put Jeremiah deep, deep down into a dungeon, into a place in which without the aid of the prison guards, he would have starved and died. And the prison guards weren't taking too kindly to Jeremiah at the time because they too did not like the prophecy that he was speaking of. We pick up the story in Jeremiah chapter 38, beginning in verse 6. Page 420 if you have a pew Bible. Verse 6, so they took Jeremiah, these are the prison guards, and they cast him into the dungeon of Micaiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water, but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now ebed the Ethiopian, one of the king's eunuchs, who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin. And ebed went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil. In all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded ebed the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here 30 men with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let down by ropes let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah then Ebed-melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah please put these old clothes and rags under your arms under your armpits under the ropes and Jeremiah did so so they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison Ebed-melech risked his own life, perhaps, because for a servant such as him to approach the king was always a risky proposition. If the king didn't like what you had to say, it was very likely that that there was possible demotion, consequences, possibly even death. And Ebed-Melech took a risk for someone he saw suffering. He didn't know the whole story. He had heard of Jeremiah, no doubt, the whole nation had. He had heard of the prophecies and he took a risk. A stranger... Jeremiah the prophet, they didn't know each other. But ebed went on Jeremiah's behalf to the king and said, I think this man needs to live. May I please get him out of his suffering? And the king granted it. And Jeremiah was lifted up out of that dungeon and continued on for a time because of ebed and his faithfulness. And then we pick up the story in Jeremiah 39, verse 15. Look what happens in response. Meanwhile, chapter 39, verse 15. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying this. This is from the, this is from the Lord. Go and speak to ebed the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city, Jerusalem, for adversity and not for good. And they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord. And you, Ebedmelech, shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword. But your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. friends we have a responsibility to minister to those who are suffering around the world even those you do not know even strangers people you often people you often feel indifferent about stories you often feel indifferent about stories that you often read about and think politically about i want you to change your tune don't just think politically don't just be indifferent Recognize, according to the scripture, that actually Jesus said specifically when you see a stranger suffering, particularly one who names the name of Christ, when you're aware of it, you have a responsibility to respond to it. Pray for them. Show companionship in one way, shape, or form. Give to organizations that are directly trying to help them. And plead, plead before officials in high places. Write letters to your senators, to your representatives, to the president, to the secretary of state. Write letters and and make phone calls and emails pleading for their release. God will honor your efforts. You'll be blessed as a result of it. That is how we respond to suffering strangers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be like Ebed-Melech. It's a story, God, that uh, we're not very familiar with, but we, we read it and we instinctively know that what he did was good. He took a risk. He did something for someone he did not know. Jeremiah was very likely a stranger to him, of a different nationality, no less. And yet, God, you have blessed this man and we are very likely going to get a chance to give him a hug in heaven. And have the opportunity to ask him, how? How did you risk it? How did you risk everything to save a stranger? Lord, let us, when we hear now of evil and suffering and persecution around the world, there's so much of it, God, and it's not possible, Lord, we know, to respond to all of it, but with what we can do, with the things that are right before us, And with the things, God, that you especially lay on our hearts by the conviction of the Spirit, would you rise up in us a desire to respond? To pray, to show companionship, to give, to plead for them who suffer. Especially those who suffer for the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.